Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Tonight on Revolt Black News. So I see these pictures of the kids. The other day she tells my son, I'm going to have you arrested. Slain mother of four, A.J. Owens, in her own words. He's eight, so he's terrified. Telling police just how aggressive killer Karen Susan Lawrence had become. This is not sound behavior from the Supreme Court. They have not properly relied on precedent. The Supreme Court decision that could dramatically decrease the number of black students admitted to college. We are not a colorblind society, and so it's very disingenuous to say that. The Supreme Court should not behave this way. What does the affirmative action ruling mean for our future? And what is the Supreme Court targeting next? And this study establishes an association of uterine cancer with chemical straighteners. Could our hair products be killing us? Plus, we started with wealth. Megan Bank. Equity is one of the fastest ways to build generational wealth in this world. How to secure the bag and find financial freedom. If you have an opportunity to own or have access to grandma's house, don't sell it. All that and more as the Black News Revolution starts right now. Hey everyone, and welcome to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm Mara S. Campo. We begin tonight with newly released police body cam footage of Susan Lawrence. That's the killer Karen who brutally gunned down Ajika A.J. Owens, a mother of four in Ocala, Florida. And she's always taking pictures of the kids. The other day she tells, she tells my son, I'm going to have you arrested and you're going to jail. That's Anjika A.J. Owens, more than a year before she was shot to death by Susan Lawrence, telling police how frightened her children were of the neighborhood's killer Karen. He's eight, so he's terrified. The Karen called. Even the children in A.J.'s community telling officers about her racist harassment. And she called us an N-word. That lady is always messing with people's kids. She's always Adult neighbors yeah. confirming Lawrence's constant torment. I was trying to reason with her one day because we were all playing here, you know, the kids, everything. And she's like, hey, you know what? One day you guys are going to die. And I'm like, and that's when I like, whoa. Hello, how hey, are you? Good. Is it Susan? Yes. For more than a year, Lawrence continually called police with complaints about the neighborhood children that she terrorized. And I don't want the kids running back and forth here screaming and yelling when I'm trying to concentrate. But newly released video from the Marion County Sheriff's Department shows the real truth. When it's just one person and she calls constantly. Call after call after call for months. According to Owens's lawyer, Lawrence was a ticking time bomb. Psycho. That's the child right there. While she had plenty to say to police then, now Lawrence isn't talking. This week, she was a no-show for her arraignment, instead entering a written plea of not guilty through her attorney. RBN is committed to telling AJ's story, and we will continue to keep you updated on the case and her family's fight for justice. 
Switching gears now to the Supreme Court and the recent ruling that could impact the advancement of black people for generations to come. The court closed out their term by ending affirmative action, banning colleges and universities from giving extra consideration to black students in admissions. But while the consideration of race is now banned, a factor that overwhelmingly benefits white students is still allowed. I started college in 1997. I went to UCLA as a political science major. My class was one of the last classes to enter while Prop 209 was being fought. Itika Oldwine Grimble was a student at UCLA, a public university, when the state banned race-based affirmative action 25 years ago. It's clear that I wouldn't be a professor at this school without affirmative action. Today, she's the founder of Old Vine Florals and Fragrances and remembers the immediate aftermath of the ban. So once Prop 209 passed, we saw at the campus on site a decline in students of color. You could see it, it was obvious. When you're walking down Bruin Walk, when you're inside of your classrooms, it dwindled. And really the only people of color, African-American specifically, you saw were athletes. Black and Hispanic populations dropped approximately 40%, while Asian and white populations grew. It was absolutely my biggest fear. I did not want to go to a, you know, predominantly white institution. I wanted to go to a diverse institution. And part of that diversity came from affirmative action. Now, the rest of the country is in the same boat. Late last month, the Supreme Court banned race as a consideration in college admissions for both public and private universities. Regardless of what those justices have put out today, that diversity unites us, not divides us even though most schools aren't even close to achieving their diversity targets. Black people make up approximately 13% of the population, but only 6% of top-tier universities. They was like, we let y'all play this game long enough, okay? Like, if y'all knew it was finna come to an end, we don't know what to tell y'all. So if y'all don't know somebody right now that could like give you a recommendation to get into these schools and stuff like that, we don't know what to tell you, okay? Choosing not to support affirmative action is choosing not to recognize this country's past. Diversity brings a lot of like uniqueness in terms of thoughts and I mean, it definitely fosters uh, learning here. One of the justices on board with this ruling, Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas has been on a mission to dismantle every institutional attempt to help and aid not just black people, but any people who have been disadvantaged in this society uh, since he's gotten on the court. Who likely wouldn't even be on the Supreme Court without affirmative action. He, like Samuel Alito, appears to operate from a kind of rage, a sort of cold rage against the entire 20th century, the second half of the 20th century, which they find to be an affront to their own self-image and to their image of America as this country that is noble and that has always been noble. In his opinion, Thomas called affirmative action rudderless race-based preferences that fly in the face of our colorblind constitution. But decades ago, when he was head of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, several news outlets quoted him saying, God only knows where I would be today if not for equal opportunity measures, adding, 
These laws and their proper application are all that stand between the first 17 years of my life and the second 17 years. And when Thomas was accepted to Yale Law School in 1971, the university was reportedly trying to hit a target of 10% black incoming students. He believed that people assumed he was there as a, as a uh, beneficiary of affirmative action, and it grated on him. He came to blame affirmative action for the rejection he felt. Affirmative action means removing the barriers for qualified students. So it has always been about the student is qualified to get into the institution. They meet all of the requirements. And then race is one of the factors that is considered among other factors. But despite headlines proclaiming that affirmative action is dead, that's not entirely true. It's never been about admitting students that are not qualified to any institution. It's simply allowing opportunities for people that have traditionally been disadvantaged. Only the consideration of race is banned. Plenty of other factors can still be considered, like athletic recruitment status, financial aid qualifications, geographic location, and legacy. Ignoring the fact that white women are usually the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action, they didn't take any issue with holding spaces for donors or legacy students. Which means that if your already white campuses start to look a whole lot whiter in the fall, you know why. We're the only country in the world with legacy preferences for students whose parents are alumni, a factor that overwhelmingly benefits white people. At Harvard, legacy kids are eight times more likely than other applicants to be admitted and are 70% white. At four elite schools, Notre Dame, USC, Cornell, and Dartmouth, there are more legacy students than black students. Legacy admissions, especially in Ivy League institutions, means that someone's mother, father, grandfather, uncle went to this institution, and so they are given preference to attend these institutions. So that is still allowed and that has always been allowed. So it's a real, just kind of, to me, slap in the face to say that we're not gonna consider race, but we will consider your, your dad, your granddad, your great granddad attended this institution and we are admitting you. And many times those admissions, those are, in my opinion, unqualified individuals. One reason for low black student population, black people were banned from many schools until only recently, including at UNC, one of the plaintiffs in the Supreme Court's affirmative action case. They wouldn't even admit black students until 1955 and then only because federal courts forced them to. Another factor that can still be considered, gender, pointing to one of the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action, white women. Now, many are bracing for other areas that could be impacted by the Supreme Court's affirmative action ruling, from coaching in the NFL to workplace diversity programs to minority scholarship and fellowship programs. And also wondering what else the court will roll back next. Clarence Thomas actually was quite blunt about what he wants, and here's the quote from him. In future cases, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence and Obergefell. When we come back, we're bringing this story right here to the studio. How could this ruling affect you, even if you're not a student? And what's next on the Supreme Court's strike list? We'll talk about it on the other side of the break. Yeah. 
If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's. Education rights are under attack. What do we do? Stand up, I bet. When black students are under attack, what do we do? Stand up, I Welcome back. Those were heated protests outside the Supreme Court after their landmark decision banning affirmative action in college admissions. Well, now we're going to bring some of that heat into our studios. Joining me today, Joy White, attorney and former general counsel for Morehouse College, and C.J. Pearson, PragerU personality. Good to have you both here. Let's dive right into this conversation. C.J., I want to start with you because you have said that you support the ruling, the Supreme Court's ruling, because you're tired of blackness being treated as a disability. What do you mean by that? You know, exactly what I tweeted. I believe that this ruling actually is a great equalizer between people of color and those in the white community. You know, I don't need people to look at me and feel bad for me because of the color of my skin. My blackness has never been something that's held me back. And to be quite frank, this ruling just makes it clear that blackness no longer needs to be the thing that opens a door. I don't need my skin color to open doors for me uh, in this world. My work ethic will, my ambition will, my drive and passion will. And, and so I think that's a great interpretation by these justices, and I uh, applaud them for their decision. Well, but some would argue that if you're not opening doors, black people are going to be faced with a closed door. So, Joy, we have seen this happen in California because there are states that have already banned affirmative action. And in the 10 years after that took place, enrollment at UCLA, my alma mater for black students, dropped over 50 percent. So we see the challenges that we are likely to face in the rest of the country. So if race can no longer be considered as a factor, how do we then ensure that black students still have opportunities in higher education? Well, I think one of the things is to look at all the options for higher education, um, not just these elite PWIs. I mean, I think um, I certainly do not agree with the ruling. And at the same time, I think that there are a lot of other options and there have always been other options, including HBCUs, community colleges. And so I think that you know, for institutions that are going to use this as a way to not welcome black students, that is not an environment where those students would have been treated well to begin with. And I think schools that want black students there will still have black students there. CJ, I'm curious your thoughts on one of the other considerations, uh, a form of affirmative action, some would argue that is still allowed, which is legacy. That if you are the child or the grandchild of an alumni, you can still uh, get some preferential treatment in admissions. What are your thoughts on legacy admissions? You know, I'm pretty consistent on this issue. I think that we should be moving all of our admissions into a more merit-based system, and that includes legacy admissions. I don't think that you should be able to buy your way into a university or college, nor do I think that your father or mother's accomplishments should be the only reason that you're admitted as well. But when you talk about a merit-based system, and we see numbers like what we saw at UCLA with a 50% drop uh, within 10 years, do you believe that the students who had been admitted prior, the black students, which include me, were only there in part because they're black? Well, not only there because they are black, but if there was such a stark drop, then I think it does beg the question, were there a large amount of people um, who were admitted uh, just because they were black? And, and I think when you examine that question, I think that for me, I don't want to be in any space, uh, you know, as Joy said, 
that is only welcoming me there because I am black. I, I don't want my admittance into a prestigious institution like UCLA or Harvard or Yale to have an asterisk beside it just because people will always wonder for all of my days whether or not I got into that institution simply because of the color of my skin. I think black children deserve more than having their qualifications questioned due to a system that they themselves did not even really ask for. Uh, Joy, let's talk about this uh, beyond the classroom, because we can expect to see the effects of this ruling in ways that affect far more than colleges and universities. How do you think this ruling is going to affect society at large beyond the classroom? Well, I think it's certainly going to impact employment. And so I think to the extent that you have fewer people that are able to go to graduate school, particularly, um, where I think this is going to probably have the biggest impact is when we're talking about law school, medical school, um, MBA, like that's where you have fewer options. I mean, there's only so many schools that offer that. And so if there are fewer people that are able to go there, then they're not going to have the degrees to go into the job force. Let's talk about this court, this Supreme Court, um, because now we have this conservative supermajority. Uh, we saw that in the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We see that now with affirmative action. A lot of people are wondering what else is coming down the line. What do you expect us to see challenged in the years to come? Um, unfortunately, I am concerned about same-sex marriage because Clarence Justice Thomas has specifically referenced that as let's go look at that now. Um, also for same-sex individuals to have sex. So sodomy in many states was illegal and was criminalized. So there was a decision in 2003 that prevented that from being criminalized. Um, I think they may go back and look at that. He specifically referenced that as well. And then there's an older case around the ability for a married couple to use contraception. He specifically named all three of those. Um, those cases and those rulings as something that maybe need to be revisited. Now, CJ, when it comes to the, the court and the makeup of the court, you've kind of painted the left as sore losers, saying, you know, people are only upset about these rulings because they haven't gone the way that they wanted them to. Um, but when we look at public opinion on the court, approval of the Supreme Court is at its lowest level ever. And I mean, this is kind of new for them to have these low levels of approval. What does that tell you about what the country thinks about what they're seeing right now? Well, first and foremost, it's not the job of the Supreme Court to be well-liked. It's not their job to have high approval ratings. It's, the, it's their job to decide whether or not uh, these cases are constitutionally sound or not. But to go back to a point uh, that Joy made, citing comments made by uh, you know Justice Thomas, I think it's important to note that, that he is just one justice uh, on this court. And all of those scenarios that she cited are just scenarios. They are hypotheticals. And also, too, I think it's really important to note that the Supreme Court has a history of overturning precedent. Uh, if it weren't for the overturning of the Dred Scott decision, we would still be drinking out of black and white water fountains. And so I think the court is absolutely free to reevaluate decisions that they have previously made to ensure that it was made on a constitutionally sound basis. I fundamentally disagree. This is not sound behavior from the Supreme Court. They have not properly re relied on precedent. Um, they have just changed their minds based on the political appointments that are there. We are not a colorblind society. And so it's very disingenuous to say that, like to put that in the order and say, we don't need this. It's just 
the Supreme Court should not behave this way. Most attorneys, most individuals that are members of the bar do not agree with this behavior unless they are, unless it's a political reason. So I think the concern is they are not relying on precedent in the way that they should rely on precedent. And I think that it's important to get, give a little bit of leeway to stray from precedent because again, going back to that Dred Scott decision, I don't think that there is anyone who believes, um, or at least um, that we would probably agree with, um, that Brown v. Board of Education should not have overturned that, that decision. And it rightfully did, and I'm proud of it. I think that we've all been the benefit of that decision to stray away from precedent. All right, we're going to have to leave it at that. Joy White, C.J. Pearson, appreciate you both so much for being here. That was a great conversation. Now, when we come back, we are going to switch gears. Cancer-causing chemicals, could they be in your beauty routine? Are relaxers killing black women? Hey there. Ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. Welcome back. Millions of us grew up relaxing our hair, getting that silky straight look from a jar of cream. While demand for relaxers has dropped for a while as black women embrace their natural curls, it seems to be making a comeback, which could actually be very bad for our health. As new research suggests, relaxers could lead to cancer and uterine fibroids. Now, RBN investigates, are relaxers killing black women? Like so many black women, Jenny Mitchell got her first relaxer as a child, chemically straightening her hair at just eight years old. She continued with regular touch-ups every few months for the next 20 years until she was diagnosed with uterine cancer at 28. I am the first voice of many voices to come. Now, Jenny is suing relaxer manufacturers, including L'Oreal and Softsheen, claiming their products are full of cancer-causing chemicals. Stand up to these companies and say no more. In her class action lawsuit, Jenny claims her diagnosis was caused by regular and prolonged exposure to phthalates and other endocrine-disrupting chemicals found in L'Oreal products. Uterine cancer isn't the only gynecological issue linked to relaxers. According to the Black Women's Health Study, so are uterine fibroids. I just want to be clear that this study establishes an association of uterine cancer with chemical straighteners, not necessarily that chemical straighteners cause the cancer, but there is an association. In terms of chemical straighteners, we believe that they have these chemicals called endocrine disruptors. And endocrine disruptors are 
different chemicals that can bind to different parts of your body. So we're thinking things like your breasts or in this case, your uterus and different tissues in your uterus, which makes you more likely to develop cancer that way. Nearly 80% of black women will eventually end up with these non-cancerous tumors in the uterus. Fibroids unfortunately impact women of color, especially black women, more than any other group. And we think those same endocrine disruptors that are in the chemicals, in chemical straighteners, promote the growth of fibroids. Fibroids can grow to the size of a watermelon and cause a range of symptoms, including heavy bleeding, anemia, pain, and infertility. In 40% of cases, the only option offered is a hysterectomy. This surgery removes the uterus completely and makes it impossible for a woman to have children. Who in this audience has been judged by their hair? We spend a lot of money, a lot of time, and in some cases, our health. So I'm not gonna go to the gym and sweat it out. I'm not gonna do certain things. And all of these have an impact on our health and our overall well-being. Sisters, let's talk about hair. Black women and our hair have a deep-rooted history within our culture. They put us down, tell us we're ugly, make us feel ugly. Wonderful hair leads to wonderful opportunities. In the Netflix film Self Made, Octavia Spencer plays Madam C.J. Walker, the daughter of former slaves who became the first female self-made millionaire in the U.S. after modifying the pressing comb so it could be used on black hair. The black hair business is a $9 billion business. Today, black women spend approximately $1.7 billion a year on hair care products. That's nine times more than other groups. And by 2026, the global market for black hair care products is projected to be worth approximately $6.9 billion. Much of that spending is on relaxers. So there's really two types of relaxers. There's lie relaxers and there's no lie relaxers. No lie relaxers do not lead to as many side effects. Lie relaxers are the ones that we've been hearing a lot about. The, when you get a lie relaxer, you're essentially breaking down the bonds of your hair in order to straighten that curl. And so you're literally breaking down your hair in order to achieve that straight hair. Yes, this is the market we're talking about, the new Negro family. In the 50s and 60s is when hair relaxers really began to be widespread because there was a strong desire and need really to articulate that we could assimilate. The 70s and 80s, you see black people really wearing afros and, you know, putting products in their curls to maintain their curls. Yes, your natural expression of pride is beautifully expressed with Afro Sheen. The laws in the 90s and in the late 80s were really starting to criminalize Black people, so it makes sense that there was this desire to want to be aesthetically pleasing again. Recently, relaxers became less popular as Black women started embracing their natural curls. In 2020, 36% of Black women in the United States said they preferred natural hair over chemically treated hair. And sales of relaxers in the black hair care industry dropped by 26.2% between 2010 and 2015. But according to this data, still more than half of the 21 million black women living in the U.S. continue to use relaxers. And this is how my hair looks after. It looks like a mop. But for many black women, hair care goes far beyond vanity. A recent study found that black women's hair was two and a half times more likely to be perceived as unprofessional. 
More than half of the black women surveyed felt like they had to wear their hair straight in a job interview to be successful. And one fifth of the black women surveyed between the ages of 25 and 34 had been sent home from work because of their hair. Deanna got called down first by our, one of our teachers. Discriminatory experiences that involve black women and girls' hair can begin as young as three years old. Your child stinks. Don't put the coconut oil in her hair. The kids were teasing her. I think I was four years old when I got my hair relaxed. At that point in time, looking your best meant straight, relaxed hair. We are starting to ha create products for people to look like themselves. What a concept. In 2018, the U.S. Navy changed its grooming policy to include braided styles and locks, which followed a similar decision by the Army in 2017. And in 2019, California became the first state to ban discrimination on natural hairstyles with the Crown Act, leading the way for six other states to follow. For women who use relaxers and still want to continue to use relaxers, even knowing what we know about their association with these various cancers and fibroids, I would tell them that you should make sure you're seeking medical care, that you're getting preventative checks. As for Jenny Mitchell, she says the long-term effects of using relaxers have left her with permanent consequences after she was forced to undergo a full hysterectomy. I'm 32 years old right now, and I'm still filling that void of not being able to bear my own child. As the number of women joining the class action lawsuit continues to rise, two black Congresswomen are asking for answers. Representatives Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts and Chantel Brown of Ohio have asked the FDA to step in and fully evaluate the safety of chemical relaxers. Coming up, Revolt business correspondent Akila Friend is giving out the keys to financial freedom. How to get yours when we come back. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Welcome back. The wealth gap between black and white Americans in this country is steep. And answers about how to fix that, they don't come easy. Well, tonight, Revolt's business correspondent, Akila Friend, is digging into the details of what we need to do to finally close the wealth gap and raise our financial IQ as we stand up for financial literacy with State Farm. The economic power of our community is higher than it's ever been but there's still way too big of a gap in wages and generational wealth between black and white America. The richest 400 American billionaires have more total wealth than all 10 million black households. Such disparity has been generations in the making as blacks were held back from owning land and building multi-generational equity while white families built wealth that grew and grew. I think the racial wealth gap speaks to the fact that we still have a long way to go to achieve ideals of equality in this country. Today, the typical white family has on average six to eight times the wealth of the typical black family, 
And white Americans hold 84% of U.S. wealth, but make up only 60% of the population, compared to blacks who hold only 4% of the wealth and make up 13% of the population. It's like if you're black in this country, you have to be like, well, what the hell? What's up with us? Closing the wealth gap is vital and must address issues like lower wages, higher unemployment, and housing discrimination among black populations. I'm Revolt Financial Correspondent Akila Friend, and I'm here with real estate investor and bank owner Benicia Poole Watson to find out how each and every one of us can become financially literate so that we can close that wealth gap together. Benicia. I am so excited for this conversation and I'm so excited that you're here with us today. You're a real estate investor, you're a developer, you own your own realty. Can you just talk a little bit about your keys to success and your, you know, just entry into the game in general? First and foremost, I'm really excited to be here because this is an important conversation that we have to have in our community. It starts now. So I own a federally chartered, direct lending, non-depository bank. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? That means that I don't accept deposits. I'm here to give the funding, right? And so I fund nationwide and I'm just here to in empower our community and inspire uh, our people to let them know that there is a safe place that you can do business where we can loan you money in an equal and equitable manner and get you to your next step into generational wealth. What are some of the historical reasons that you think we are behind when it comes to generational wealth? We started with wealth. Mm. because a lot of our grandparents and great-grandparents actually own land. True. I know there's a story in a, a town called Wilmington, North Carolina. Mm. And in Wilmington, they had a family who owned like almost half of the beach area. And they lost it just because they didn't structure their business right. People came in and took opportunity mm. um, against them. And essentially, that land was turned over to someone who didn't look like us. And that's black communities all across the United States. Systematically, we have experienced so many um, historic evolutions of ownership, losing it, selling grandma's house. Right. So essentially, we have to understand real estate, what it truly can do, and how to better ourselves through the building of equity. And then I think mm -hmm. once we understand that, then we can move forward and be better on how we manage our financials, including property. Historically, black people worked tirelessly to become owners of land, homes, and businesses in upwardly mobile neighborhoods like Tulsa, Oklahoma, Rosewood, Florida, and many more. But a series of racially motivated massacres, like those in 1921 in Tulsa and 1923 in Rosewood, stole our land, homes, and businesses away from us. What do you think are some of the key issues regarding financial literacy or the lack thereof in a lot of black families? I think there's a fear factor. Who can you really trust? Yeah. In banking, we don't have relationships with bankers and banking systems as an African-American community. And so we have to start developing those. And that's why I ended up being here because if I can provide a portal directly to where you need to go without having to jump through hoops. Someone who really cares about the community and wants to give that information from their heart and it starts from there. And I think we'll start breaking down those trust barriers. Yeah. How did, you know, that mindset happen? I know, again, let's take it back to you from childhood. You have a Guatemalan mother, a black father. I'm first generation American, so I feel you. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Come on, girl. Yes. <laughs> we got it. 
it. But yes. how did that really, you know, affect you growing up, especially affect you when it comes to the world of just finances? It absolutely affected me. Mm -hmm. My mother came to this country with one bag, $20, absolutely nothing, no guidance. She mm -hmm. just knew that she wanted a better, better life right. for herself. And here comes me. And I saw my mother work so hard. She was a nurse. Mm -hmm. We grew up in South Central LA. So I was a latchkey. My mom was off to work early in the morning, come home at dark. I had to feed myself, figure it out. Can't go outside, can't open the door. Don't do this, yep. don't do that. It was like <laughs> I lived like an adult almost because yes. I had to be responsible yes. for myself and my little sister. Essentially just growing up and always wanting to do more. I was a reader, I was very academic, I was very studious, but I liked to play. Right. So I did everything that everybody did, I just didn't get caught, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm no different than anybody else, yes. you know, growing up in an urban community, except I just always had a desire to want more. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's because I saw my mother work so hard yeah. to achieve the things that she wanted to achieve. I had a dad, my dad was in the house, they got a divorce and you know, you go through that. But at the end of the day, you have to want more for yourself. I just always had a desire to want to have my own. And what triggered that is when I was about 18, 19, you mm -hmm. want to go rent your own place to yeah. live, you want to try to be independent. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, shoot, I don't own any of this. Yes. Like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. If I'm going to pay to rent, what does it cost to own? And Love that's that. when I flipped the trigger and bought my first house. So you bought your first house, you know, obviously at before 19. you- At 19. Yes. How did that even happen? When I was 15 years old, I got discovered by The Gap, walking through the mall mm. and instantly signed on the dotted line with the model scout. It paid me a grip of money. Okay. And so <laughs> I was able to save. Nice. And that's how I bought my first house. You did the Air Force for nine years you're, and you're a veteran. Yeah. You know, what did the military teach you or the Air Force teach you that let's say you didn't learn in school mm. or how did you apply those skills yeah. in the real world? So I thought I was, you know, whatever, so the Air Force can't break me, but right. really what it did was it taught me discipline. Mm. And it taught me to follow through. Okay. It taught me that if you wanna get here, you have to go through the journey. True. Um, you're not gonna have it easy. Mm -hmm. I move in a space where service before self. I can't be here in this position helping other people if I'm yeah. thinking about myself. You've taken that and you've just transitioned in such a beautiful way. You're a real estate investor, but you also own a bank. Just explain that process to owning a bank yep. and kind of the effects of that in the community that you've seen. I was working corporate America mm -hmm. and I was being the best black I can be. Okay. <laughs> I was showing up early, I was staying late. I was training everybody wow. in the to get to the next level. Yeah. I was building this company up and I hit a glass ceiling. Mm. And that glass ceiling, I hit it hard because yeah. I was like, man, God, what is happening here? Am right. I not worthy of this? And God spoke to me, he said, get a real estate license. I opened my laptop, I typed in real estate, school popped up, I bought the packet, yeah. um, it was $498. Wow. The books came in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. I studied the packet for four months. I took the test. I got my real estate license. Yeah. And so my first year as a real estate agent license, I sold over 200 houses. Wow. That is just Unheard extraordinary, right. abnormal. Mm -hmm. The average realtor sells eight. Wow. Um, once I did that, I sold 350 my second year. Mm -hmm. Once I did that, people started gravitating towards mm -hmm. me to say, how are you doing this? And so I created the Bailey Watson Real Estate Group. Mm -hmm. And that is my real estate brokerage mm -hmm. company. I have a girlfriend who she was also a realtor mm -hmm. and I couldn't do it by myself because I was still working my job and balancing right. being a mom and everything. And so I said, I need some support. Totally. So we named it Bailey, her last name and Watson, my last name. Mm. And we've been up and running ever since. So we started with 10 agents and now we have over 250 realtors mm. that work for the company. Right. And we started having conferences. So what we lack in our community is access to capital. And after I spoke, a guy pulled me off the stage and said, 
would you like an opportunity to own a bank? And I said, I don't want to own a bank. <laughs> I sell real estate. He's like, you can own the bank, but you hire people to do the work. Right. And I was mm -hmm. like, well, shoot, I'm a boss. That sounds like <laughs> it. Sounds I can like do it. this. Right. And the rest was history. And wow. that's how I ended up starting a bank. Just to highlight how incredible Benicia's accomplishment is, according to the FDIC, as of 2018, only 23 out of 5,400 financial institutions in the United States were owned and operated by black people, which may be one of the reasons black adults have the highest underbanked rate of any racial group at 27%. But then I, I layered it and put levels in there that's different from how banks truly operate. Mm. What are some of those levels that, that are different and, and what would a, appeal to, let's say, the everyday person who, who wants to potentially pursue, get a home? Why would they say, okay, prime one, that's where I need to go? Yep, I do commercial and I do residential mm. in one place. Typically, you have to go to two different places. Yep. They don't play in the same. I do offer products and services that are extraordinary. I can right. close in three days. Wow. So as an African-American person starting a business, I'm like, okay, I know the community's pretty harsh, right? Yep. They mm -hmm. will black Twitter you to death, <laughs> and then you're on the list. So I'm like, what can I do to make sure that I'm elevating above? So it's like, no, I'm like, I'm like, remember in Living Color, like yeah. Wanda, like yeah. I got this. What you need? I got <laughs> this. What you need? I got this. That's it. That's you need it. gas? I got this. That's it. <laughs> so, I mean, and it's great to be that way because it definitely translates in terms of the service that you do too. Yes. Like, talk a little bit more about um, the initiative that you're doing with kids and financial literacy. I think it translates equally yes. to that. <laughs> yes, I chose to go back to high schools because I felt like the high school age is when you're in your transition. Right. You are getting ready to go into the world as a senior. You don't know what you're gonna do. If we don't keep our money circulating in the black community, we lose it. Spend it where we are. So that way we can have more successful people like yourself coming out of school. So I created a scholarship for high school students where I send two high school students to real estate school every single year at no cost to wow. them. Wow. They don't pay a dollar. And if they want to be mentored by a top professional in the real estate space <laughs> yes. that has done extraordinary things outside of the box, mm -hmm. then I will offer it to them at no cost. Right. And so that allows them to have a resource and the tools to either you can sell real estate and make some extra money, mm -hmm. or you can just be a filter for your family with information, yes. or mm -hmm. you can buy a house yourself. It's really for me about breaking mm -hmm. the generational curse of renting. So what are two or three things that you can say that folks um, can truly do next after listening to this? The important pieces are your credit. Yes. Value your FICO score. Mm, because yes. when you come to a bank, and my favorite word is bankable, you have to be in position for them to even want to have a conversation with you. And if you have a below standard credit score, which is under 580, mm. then you're not going to sit at this table. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Another thing is, again, like going back to grandma's house. Mm. If you have an opportunity to own or have access to grandma's house, don't sell it. If your parents own a home, help them keep the home, okay? Contribute, do anything that will guarantee your legacy. Grandma's house has been there way before you were, mm. okay? So that means that grandma probably has some equity in that property. True. And equity is one of the fastest ways to build generational wealth in this world. And then now you can purchase that property, you yeah. can hold it, you can rent it out and build your portfolio and now you can take your family and your legacy to the to up new heights, level. To new yes. heights.
I'd like to thank the incredible Benicia Poole Watson for joining us on Stand Up For, presented by State Farm. We've learned so much today. And the most important thing, you can take action right now to improve your financial knowledge. Yes. You, you've, you've shared it, you've shared it all. One amazing opportunity is the Dollars and Cents Youth Investment Program, a collaboration between the mentoring organization, the 100 Black Men of America and State Farm. Dollars and Cents helps to eradicate financial illiteracy among high school students of color. Visit 100blackmen.org to learn more. A big thanks to State Farm for sponsoring today's episode of Stand Up For. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Akila, thank you. This is the kind of financial information that can position us all to level up. All right, we'll be right back. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, that wraps it up for us. Remember to stay connected with us on Facebook, Twitter, Revolt on YouTube, our Revolt Black News podcast, and download the Revolt app. Until next time, good night, everyone. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's.